This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and back episodes are available 24-7 via podcast, wherever you get yours. Just look for Laura Zarrow and Women at Work. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXMBusiness. Now, despite decades of effort, women, and especially working moms, are leaving the workforce in droves. While this has been catalyzed by by the pandemic, the real problem is that women continue to work in an untenable social and economic system that, frankly, was designed by men for men. But today's guest has a plan to change all of it. Reshma Sajani is a game-changing activist and entrepreneur who has just published a new book, Pay Up, The Future of Women at Work, and why it's different than you think, that aims to transform this truly broken system. Reshma, welcome back to Women at Work. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I want to say a little bit more about you so that our audience just gets the full picture before we start really talking further. So Reshma surged onto the political scene in 2010 as the first Indian American woman to run for U.S. Congress. During the race, Reshma visited local schools as candidates are wont to do, and she saw firsthand this serious gender gap in computing classes. This led her to start Girls Who Code, which has since taught 300,000 girls in person and reached 500 million people worldwide. Reshma is also the author of the profoundly important bestseller, Brave Not Perfect, and her influential TED Talk, Teach Girls Bravery, Not Perfection, has more than 5 million views. Now, in response to the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on America's mothers, Reshma has launched the Marshall Plan for Moms to advocate for policies that value women's labor in and out of the home, which is what we're talking about today. So Reshma, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so great to be here again. So I got to tell you, I have faith in the future because with everything you've accomplished, I'm hoping like if anybody can make this happen, it's you. Thank you for saying that. No pressure, though. No pressure. So one of the things you talked about in the book was, and I love the way that you put this, it was the big lie of corporate feminism. Can you help explain for me and the listeners what it is and quite specifically how it affected you personally? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I spent the past 10 years um, as the CEO of Girls Who Code and the founder, you know, telling my, my, the young women to like barnstorm the corner office, you know, to lean in really hard, you know, to girl boss their way to the top. And in COVID, I found myself with, you know, two little babies and a full-time job, and it nearly broke me. And I learned the hard way that having it all is just a euphemism for doing it all. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't matter, right? How many leadership courses you take, whether you color code your calendar, whether you bravely raise your hand, like we have to stop trying to fix the woman and fix the system. So Reshma, there's a lot that's important in there, but I want to start with some of the personal stuff, if you don't mind. You know, you are one of my role models. I see what you accomplish. I see the impact you make on the world. And I have often wondered how you do it, sleep and manage to have great hair every day. 
And part of what you just shared with us was you were not, you were accomplishing things, but you were not okay. Do you mind sharing a little more about what happened and what that looked like for you? Yeah, well, I mean, well, first I'll talk about what happened. Do you want me to start by talking about what happened at COVID or what happened while I was girl bossing my way to the top as a mom? Um, wherever you want to begin, but what I'm interested in is this arc of your physical and emotional well-being. Yeah, I mean, look, I, 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 I look back at the past 10 years before COVID and I have a lot of regret. You know, it took me whew, like eight, nine years before I was finally able to have a child. And then when I had Sean, you know, I was running this organization, scaling it. And, you know, I didn't see him crawl. I didn't see him take his first steps. I never put him to sleep. I was never there for, for any of the meals, meals. You know, I was on a plane two, three times a week and I saw him maybe 20 minutes a day. And so I bought into this myth that, you know, that that's what it, how it had to be. That if I was gonna change the world, then that was a sacrifice that I had to pay. And I missed out on a lot. And, you know, in COVID, I, th I think what really, because I think we always think when it's not all going right, we're doing something wrong. We're just not right. balancing it well. We're not just sleeping. You know, it's just a little bit more meditation and everything. You'll be fine. And I, and I think COVID was really eye-opening for me because, again, I started, you know, I started the pandemic with, you know, Girls Who Code having a Super Bowl ad. I was having my second child. I was, you know, going to spend time with him, have my maternity leave, you know, ignite, ignite that fire in my relationship, in my marriage again. Like, it was going to be amazing. And then COVID hit. And I went back to work when my baby was a few weeks old. And I had to homeschool my kindergartner and, you know, save my nonprofit from being shut down. Because when pandemics hit, the first resources to go are, are to women and girls. And I got COVID-19, but it barely registered. My liver failed. And my entire leadership team were, were parents, most, all, mostly all women, of, of young children. And we were saying to ourselves, you know, just wait, wait till September when the schools open. When the schools open, everything is going to be fine. And when the schools didn't open and they came up with this thing called hybrid, you know, schooling. Where you would have to log on your kid at like nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, all the while maintaining your full-time job. It's when you started seeing this large exodus of women. And it's when I personally was like, wait, 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 wait. aren't they gonna email me and ask me, hey, Reshma, do you have time to do this? Do you have mental energy to do it? Because the thing that really hurt me, you know, not even made me angry, but hurt me, was that they knew that women were the ones that were doing the homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And so they knew that the sacrifice was gonna be bared by women of not just our jobs, but our mental health. Mm -hmm. So Rashma, as you're walking through this process and getting up to this like critical breaking point, there's two things that I'm wondering about in the experience before the pandemic and why the pandemic um, catalyzed it so much. So one is that how, talk to me about the relationship between personal ambition and being hungry to do a lot and the role that, um, and how much of that ambition is um, achievable or gets magnified because we're chasing something. And then what are the systems that we need to have in place in order to be that ambitious, if we can be. And I assume you mean that's a working parent, right? Yeah. Because, 
Because I do think it's different when you don't have kids or you don't have yeah. to take an elderly parent, right? When you're kind of solely focused on yourself and what you, because your time is yours. And when you become a parent, you have other responsibilities and your time is not yours. So you're constantly, as I talk about my book, on this proverbial seesaw, mm-hmm. right? Where we're one, one, and you're trying to figure out, quote, that dirty word balance. Yeah, which doesn't exist. Which doesn't <laughs> exist. And, and, and I think we try a lot of different strategies in how we're going to do that. Because so my, my parents, for example, were refugees and they couldn't afford childcare. And I was a latchkey kid. And I'm always often joking with my sister, my mom, my mom, my parents didn't come to my award ceremonies. We didn't have after school activities. Our babysitter was a television because they had to work. You know, I'm raising kids in the era of intensive parenting, right? Where your kid has to learn Mandarin, Spanish, Hindi, you know, be in, in a different activity every single day. And I got to be always on right. and, be, you know, not only running the largest women and girls organization, but being an author of a book launching a podcast, being a, you know, being a, and so there's all of this kind of pressure. And I think in many ways, it's, it's about trying to be able to have joy in both aspects of your life and sanity in both aspects of your life. And so I always found myself, I never got to enjoy the successes. You know, I was walking off the Ted stage to take the elevator upstairs, you know, to breastfeed my son. Right. You know, I was, or I was rushing home from an from an amazing opportunity, or on, on the on the on the red eye, you know, that was just <laughs> mess up my sleep. Or I'm impatiently, my son, and we're brushing teeth, and he wants to dance to the next, you know, what I mean, Disney song, and I'm like, hurry it up, I gotta oh, go. Oh, I know. So when you're I th- never in either one, right? Right. It's like you can't be fully present where you are, and because of the anxiety about one, you feel like you're always missing or being pulled from the other. Um, and one of the things that really touches me in this is also, it, it sounds like it's not just when we have other responsibilities, but it's also, it steals from us the joy of parenting. Yeah. And, and I think when most people are hearing this conversation pre-COVID, you'd be like, oh, well, sucks, but that's motherhood, right? That's the way it is. And I think what I've realized is no, that's not the way it has to be. We've been told that. And if you look at other nations and other countries, it's not that way. And so I, I really feel like there's a, you know, we're in this, when we talk, we're talking about the future of work, we're in this really foundational moment to rewrite the rules of work, to rewrite the rules of feminism, to rewrite mm-hmm. the rules of mothering out loud, you know, and, and, and so it's kind of exciting and but we have to be very diligent to not go back to the old normal absolutely so Rashma, when we were talking the other day part of where this was resonating for me is in my regular life at wharton people analytics we're talking all about the future of work mm-hmm. one of the big messages we're getting especially as we're planning our upcoming conference is that we keep hearing it over and over again from our speakers that we can't go back because you can't go backwards. But B, that normal is never going to exist again. And in many ways, we don't want it to. We have to be looking forward and create a new normal that makes sense for the world that we're in now and the world that we want to create. So in that context, when you think about what is it that our new normal needs to look like, can we identify it and name it so we can start figure out how to build it? Well, I think the new normal for working women should be one that we have support 
from our government, our employers, our partners. I think it should be one where we can move in and out of the workforce without penalty. It should be one where we don't have to hide our motherhood or apologize for it. It should be one where our, our, our mental health is valued and it's not only our output, you know, that, that is that is put front and center. And so, I mean, I think that those are some of the, like the high level building blocks. And then I think we can talk about some real specifics. I mean, I mean the reality is, is, and I talk about this in my book, if you go through the history, workplaces were never designed for us. They never wanted no. us. So they never put practices into place. I mean, basics, like why is the school day nine to three and the work day nine to five? Makes me bananas for 19 years, maybe bananas. Makes no sense. Because there was a woman who was at home taking care of the kids. And so it made sense. But that doesn't make sense now when the vast majority of women, mothers, parents work. Look, a huge, you can't understand the American economy and system of work without recognizing the degree to which it was designed around unpaid labor. Yes. And it whether was- it was enslaved people or women, it was the unpaid labor was what enabled the people to go to work and get paid, or yeah. they made money off of the backs of unpaid labor. And, and so it's intrinsic. Yeah. And well, I was gonna say, we've returned back to that. I mean, when you look at the latest jobs numbers, you have 27 times more men entering the workforce than women. And it's because we're still, you know, and I don't think the jobs numbers accurately depict what's happening. It's not, it's not just women that are not in the workforce, but it's the downshifting that has happened. Right. The the changing of the careers, you know, to take care of, of children. Yeah, that to me is one of the things that I'm most concerned about because it has a short-term and a long-term impact. In the short run, it means that so many women have stepped out of work. How are they going to come back in when they're able again? Um, And then in the long run, both for our economy and those women, the net loss over time between Social Security, retirement savings, pay raises, promotion opportunities, um, it's going to set women back 20 to 30 years. At least Never mind the inclusion, the diversity that we lose in the yeah. workplace itself that we need to help build the future of work. Yeah. So it's a big loss. A huge loss. I, you know, it's, it is one of the most important issues facing our country right now. That's why I'm shocked, you know, that Congress, you know, is bailing out airlines, but they're not bailing out moms. You know, <laughs> I love this it. moment can't pass this bill. It's because it's, 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 I think it's so clear to you and I what the economic cost. Yep is of this and we i promise you i'm sure like two years from now we're gonna see every time magazine cover we're gonna be like well the women the women the women and and we're gonna be like well we we're telling you that right when I, but, we could have actually intervened and it not be a 30-year thing right <laughs> right so you mentioned the bill um for the listeners who aren't um aware of it talk to me about what the bill is and and what the the motivation is behind it and what we want it to accomplish and what the challenges are with it yeah, and so you know the the president and you know has uh, been pushing forth the bill called Build Back Better that has not passed you know the Senate and the tenets of this that are applicable to this conversation are one on childcare you know creating a ceiling uh, on the cost that some families will pay for childcare because for most American families the cost of childcare is actually more than their mortgage mm-hmm. so it's a huge huge driver uh, of decision. Where it becomes too expensive to go to work. Correct. Um, 
you know, the second thing is finally getting passing paid leave. You know, we're, oh my God. the United States is the only industrialized nation that doesn't have paid leave. And then the child tax credit. I mean, basically, which, which you know, is not tied to work. But if you have a child, you basically get a check from the government. Uh, again, depending upon where you sit um, from an income perspective. And so these are the things that economists, policymakers, women have mm -hmm. identified as what they need to get back to work and to get back to work with a better foundation and a better structure that is set up for stability. So if and when we have a pandemic or another event again, we're not right back here. Right. So when you look at the, there are a lot of reasons why the bill is stalled. But when you think about where is it that as voters, as women, we could be making a difference in this? You know, it's such a such an uh, such an interesting question. And I think we have to because I don't think you can just blame Manchin, which is no. the, which is the easy way to say, well, right. we, we tried to push it and then this happened. I think that there's a real cultural divide on whether the government should be providing support to families for child, for care. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of people believe on the left you know, that, or I'm sorry, on the right, that, you know, uh, childcare is your personal problem for you to fix, for you to solve. When you become a parent, that's a choice. Why should tax dollars go to that? And so I think it's like even, and they're saying this at a moment where we have a 50-year low in terms of our birth rates, which is mm -hmm. dangerous, you know, for our economy and for our country. So I think that that culture divide sits in the middle of it. I think the second thing is the people who are, who who need this the most are too exhausted to to, to barnstorm <laughs> Congress to fight for it, and we're being taken advantage of. Um, I think it's also just a, a set of like the how we value women and children, which mm -hmm. is as far as I'm concerned very low on our on our list of values, which is right. deeply problematic and and what actually needs to change. But you know, I just I don't only blame you know mansion for this. I think it is an entire, I mean, so many of the men who are making decision-making power had stay-at-home partners, right. you know, did not experience this, don't understand what it's like to walk in the shoes of a woman, a woman of color that's an hourly employee in this country. And so doesn't understand how hard we make it for her to survive. Yeah, it uh, seems as if in many ways, um, there are deep, deep-seated ideological differences that kind of, you know, we see this in the political divide in the country and all these issues get boiled, kind of oh, deeply oversimplified so that they're on one side of the red-blue fence. But at the same time, it seems like central to it is this ironic perception of when we have choice and when we don't have choice, when we should have choice, when we shouldn't have choice, and who ultimately gets to make the decisions for us. Yeah. I, I, I find the irony kind of infuriating that the idea that it's totally a choice that we choose to enter motherhood. Yes. And coming out of the mouths of the same people that are saying, no, you don't actually get to make have, You choices. don't get to have reproductive choice. Well, I think what's also fascinating is kind of what's happened, you know, uh, on these these fights on critical race theory, you know, and parent choice, which I recently mm -hmm. wrote an op-ed about. It's like we have... Um, you know, we have uh, distracted moms with things, quite frankly, that are not as important to their everyday lives. 
you know, uh, and and I think that that is deeply problematic, which which also says to me like there's an there's a need to organize. That's why I'm so fascinated by the workplace, because you know it's it, it's interesting. I, I think a similar dynamic happens in the workplace. Like so, for example, you know, more women probably called into the New York Times to do their primal scream than called their congressperson demanding paid leave. Oh my God, that's really an and it's, important it, observation. Well, and it's why I wrote this book in the way that I wrote this book, because I, I do think a friend of mine was telling me a story about how she was at yoga class and the yoga instructor basically says, I got to I got to cancel my 7 a.m. because my husband's a jerk and he won't take care of the kids and my, and my babysitter um, quit. And my friend went up to her, Mara went up to her afterwards and said, well, do you have you heard about this bill? And she bill back better. She said, oh, well, I thought that bill was about transportation. See. Part of it is like, we got to know what we're, what we're supposed to fight for. Right. And, and and that's what I wanted to do in this book, because I don't think that people, that moms, and that's again, why I am saying they're calling, it's been journalists who have kept this story alive um, rather than the government. Because I don't, I don't think moms, one, trust or two, think that government can do anything to change their lives, right. but they can. And so that is a narrative shift. And I also think that, that the other piece is that we need to feel like we have some control over our lives. And that's why I'm very excited about workplace organizing and about this moment that we have with the great resignation to have a, some leverage over our lives. It, and this has been going, I, the amount of friends who I've had over the past, and this is pre-COVID, right. who have a baby, want to work from home, want to work remotely Fridays. And rather than ask, they quit. And I'll say, well, did you ask? And they're like, no, 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 I, no, I, I'm not going to get it. And so, and we're not crazy for feeling that way because we're no. already discriminated against, right? When, when, when we're moms. And so we know that the likelihood is we're going to, that asking is going to be seen. Oh, please. Part of why your whole first book was so important is because we've been conditioned not to be brave about those things. Yes. yes. And so I feel like we have to have some wins. And the wins that we can really have right now are in the workplace. And when we get those wins and we see the implications on our life, we're marching to Washington. That's when game on. And this that's- is, It's a really interesting reframing, Rashma, because we know that our work lives, our, our lives all together, but especially this dynamic of how we work, how we're supported, how we're not, is at this intersection of workplace policies and government policies. And so if I'm hearing you right, while we desperately need government to help build the future of work and the future of working moms, more within reach is the workplace. It's yeah. where we are every day and where the political divide isn't the isn't the issue. It's the issue of connecting this to the bottom line. Absolutely. Like there is no I mean, so going back there, there is bipartisan support on everything that we're talking about, all the issues. There's no divide. Uh, it's just, it's, it, it is, again, like waiting for Congress is just a losing strategy. I mean, Washington <laughs> is broken. Right. And so I'm not going to sit here and wait. So I, I think, right, you, you look at the landscape and you say, okay, there's stuff I can do. But then this, this workplace opportunity here, like, I, I'm not kidding. Like, I think in the next couple of years, subsidized childcare can actually be a norm in the way that employers are paying for healthcare. And it is going to take you know, us asking for it in this moment. Mm -hmm. And so that is the thing I'm focused. How do we do that? How do we feel 
and lean into and it'd be different if we didn't have leverage it'd be different right. if we were looking at a you know at a buyer's market in the workplace right and we just had to say okay yes thank you whatever i'll come we're not so and part of what the great resign it's the, there's a potent irony here if i'm hearing what you're saying which is that while i while the great resignation is the reflection of the pain that women have been enduring and where we just said, people said, uncle, I can't do it anymore. It's also the thing that's going to give women leverage for changing workplace policies. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and you know, th this is the, this is the irony about life. You know, like, <laughs> it's why you say don't waste a good crisis. Right. But I think that's what's key, right? Is that we yeah. have to un see this as a crisis and identify the places where we need to mobilize and have our voices heard, or we're going to miss the boat. And see it as an opportunity, right? And say, oh, actually, we have. A and the other interesting piece of this is like, it's not just us. You know, childless women and men want this too. Dads want mm -hmm. this too. I mean, the, I mean you're, seeing, you're seeing all these articles, right? The CEOs who are quitting because they want to spend more time with their kids. Again, as a man, you rather quit then say, hey, I want to take my kid to school. I want to see him play soccer. Right. I missed out on all of this. I don't want to do that again. But that shows you how far we've moved away in culture. You mm -hmm. know, I think about my dad. You know, my parents, my father worked at the same company for 30 years. And I remember as a kid going to those, you know, picnics that they used to have for the, I mean, it was family values. And that's why people stayed at companies for long, because maybe your kid, kid could get a job there, but they, right. they cared about your family. They asked about their family. You're part of it. We've moved so far away from that. And it's why people are quitting. People aren't quitting because they don't want to work. People are quitting because they don't want to work for you. Right. Because they can't stand it anymore. Because they can't stand it anymore. And so they're shopping for the, for the company that matches their values. One of the things that we were talking about is that we're in a really important moment of reshaping what work is going to look like for the future. We've come out of a devastating pandemic that really woke up the world to how untenable work has been, especially for moms. And part of what you were sharing, which is both exciting and I think a new point of view, is that it's through workplace organizing that we stand to make the most substantial change and the kind of changes that we need. So start by telling me, what does workplace organizing look like? Is it labor unions? Is it one-to-one um, -one conversations with our bosses? What form does it take? I think it depends, right, on, on what workplace that we're actually talking about. Uh, what I lay out in the book are some strategies that you can like engage in, uh, depending upon the issue and how to approach your employer or how to approach, you know, getting the ERG to essentially galvanize around whether it's flexibility, whether it's subsidized childcare, whether it's, you know, mandating paid leave. But the, the point is, is that when we are either interviewing for a job mm -hmm. or deciding whether to leave a job, you know what I mean, or banding together, we should be asking for these things. Uh, and, and, and again, and, it, and stop trying to fix the woman, but fix the structure. Okay, and, so let's talk about some of what these things are. Yeah. So um, there's a term you use in the book, you're referring to it before, that I just love, parent loudly. Yeah. Talk to me about what that means and why it's actually an essential prong in this process. Well, I mean, the first thing is, is like so many of us, you know, we, we got to get to a place where we value motherhood. 
And I think because we know as workers we're penalized for our motherhood, we've been taught to hide our motherhood. Mm -hmm. Give you an example, pregnancy. Almost every single one of us waited to the last possible second to tell our employer that we're pregnant. Yeah. There was just recently an article about how Zoom's so great because you can hide that you're pregnant to like- <laughs> Surprise. Basically the babies come out. How sad is that, right? Like what, what, a, what, a, what a profound statement yeah. on how broken workplaces are that, that we have to do that and that right. is expected. It's also not good for the workplace, ironically. I mean, I was very fortunate, and this is now 20 years ago that I was pregnant, and I was able to tell my boss, who was a woman and a working mom from years ago, that I was going through fertility treatments, that I was pregnant, um, the challenges I faced during my pregnancy. Aside from the way I interpret it as she was trying to support me and retain me as an employee, it also meant that as I was preparing for maternity leave, I could make sure that everything was in order so that yeah. my transition didn't hurt the organization. Yeah, that's right. And, and and look, I think it's also just, I mean, I've, I've hired women eight months pregnant, seven months pregnant. Like it's just, it's just the, the reality is, is I, I hire moms all the time because they're like the most productive, the most, you know what I mean? They, they just get it done. But <laughs> you know, part of what we need to start doing is parent loudly you know, a mother loudly and upfront, you know, don't turn your Zoom camera off when your kid interrupts your call. Don't apologize for it. You know, don't wait to the last possible second, you know, to announce your pregnancy. Um, don't put on your calendar, you know, uh, you know, a networking lunch instead of saying that you have to go to the pediatrician. We have to shift it. We have to literally throw our babies in their face. Say, <laughs> so in other words, it's us. This, right. These are our responsibilities, you know, and, and, and if we're, and, and if we're, we are, we get discriminated against it, we got to take that on head on. So in other words, rather than accepting that that bias is ever present and hiding from it and being afraid of it, part of what we need to do is collectively challenge it by putting it in everyone, by being forthright about this is who we are and this yeah. is the reality of our lives. And, and I think what makes it even more interesting for us is like we see that when men do it they're praised oh my goodness recognized they're valued this right? has been a big bugaboo in one of the offices i was in there was a guy who would very proudly strut out and say i'm leaving early for carpool yeah. and when one of the women did it everyone was like what she's leaving early and also interestingly the younger women who and the and the women who were not mothers there was also an issue there because like, yeah. wait a second, I don't get to leave early because I want to go, you know, warm up for my triathlon. She gets to leave early because she's going to pick up her kids from school. So yeah. like we saw tension around something that shouldn't be producing that kind of tension. Absolutely. And because and, then, and people have to recognize the facts and which is that mothers are penalized for we do have more caretaking responsibilities we are doing the vast majority of caretaking cognitive labor cooking cleaning blah blah we have two and a half jobs and so i think that just again that's why i called you know my organization now marshall plan for moms and people have so many feelings about well what about the dads what about the dads and so we have got to instead of trying to make everybody feel included and also then holding a lot of resentment because right. we know what, what we have on our plates is so much more. I think we have to 
try a different strategy. So let me ask, so it, I'm wondering if embedded in this is the problems, like when we think about how do we rethink work holistically in order to make this sustainable, how much of the problem is the nine to five structure of work? I mean, I think it's definitely, I mean, for, for some people work a lot more than nine to five, right? But I mean, I think it's, it's basically having work structures that aren't flexible. Mm-hmm. You know, I always say like, if we can build work structures for moms, they'll work for everyone. You know, when I started Girls Who Code, the places where I first learned, first went to go teach Girls Who Code were refugee camps in poor communities. Because if I could teach her to code, I could teach every, everybody. Similarly here, I think we have to literally look at work from the perspective of a, of a, of a woman of color that's a mother mm-hmm. and say, what are all your pain points? What are all the things that make it challenging for you to not just do your work, but to also be a mom right? and solve for that? So maybe, you know, maybe it is, you know, having kids that are young kids that are in school that get out at three o'clock and then I don't get out at five and then I got to find a babysitter and that's very challenging. Or my work day starting at, you know, eight o'clock when my kids work day starts at seven, you know, like fixing, solving for some of those and not there maybe very individualistic, you know, solutions to that. Um, I think the second piece though we cannot deny is cost which is why I talk about subsidizing childcare so much. Right. You know, a lot of this is like, you know, in heteronormative relationships, two people getting out the bills and the receipts and saying, okay, what makes sense here? Right. And because we have this pay gap, because we're moms, it's normally my career that's taken a hit. Right. But also when we talk about cost, it's why this relationship between the hours of public school and the normal workday are so important because public school is, for millions of families, free child care from the moment it opens until it closes, but it doesn't correlate with work. And that's part of why during the pandemic, when school closed, working parents became child care. Yeah, absolutely. While working. And my son goes to public school, and that's absolutely the case. And, you know, the critique is, well, well, we need to fix child care. Well, we need to do both. Right. And, and so that's the thing that makes me so disappointed. You know, two years later, we're still having the same conversation about, you know, working from home or not working remotely or not working remotely, rather than talking about design, rather right. than talking about what we learned and what we're doing. I have you know, I want to see some schools experiment or some companies experiment with cutting the workday. You know right. what I mean? Nine to three. Like, I'm calling that out there. Any companies you're listening, right? I'm happy to help amplify it because I think this is part of that wholesale rethinking of our structures to build for a future where everybody is working. Yeah. But Laura, you know, it's like our leaders aren't helping. You know, both President Biden, both my, you know, Mayor Eric Adams was like, get out of your pajamas and come to work. And it's like, come on. Like, that's not what's happened. It's no, that insults us. It's insults us because it makes us seem like, well, we don't want to work. We do want to work. Like, am I home in my pajamas eating bonbons? Right. We're like, not- I got to tell you, if I'm in my pajamas, it's because I woke up, drank coffee, started reading email at six o'clock in the morning, and just kept working all day and didn't have time for a shower. It's not because I'm eating bonbons. Yeah. And I think a lot of other people are experiencing this. How much of that, though, do you think is not about... Um, it's really how much do you think it about it, especially coming from a mayor, is about the role of office space in a city's economy. 
It's a, I'm sure a lot of that is what's driving it. But I, I think I think we can think about how to, you know what? Build daycares inside companies. How about mm-hmm. that idea? Right? So instead of saying, instead of the rally call being like, get out of your pajamas, come back to work. You know what I mean? The rally call should be like, hey, companies, why don't we start building workplaces to work for working women and parents? How about that? So it's, it's really about breaking down this divide as yeah. if these are two separate systems that don't affect each other. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's just where our prioritizations are. It's why I, in New York, there's nothing that infuriated me more than the fact that we were opening up restaurants before we were opening up schools. That schools were at the bottom, kids, which means not, which when we say kids, we mean also mother, mothers. Right. We're at the bottom of the list because we knew by then. I mean, again, million articles that told you, you know, that essentially that when you, make schools, when you close them down, you make them unstable. You know what I mean? You have all these policies that that, that is childcare for, for many working parents. Yeah, for millions and of us. For millions and millions, you know, over 40 million working women in the workforce, working mothers in the workforce, right? So it's like this affects the vast majority of the labor force. Yeah, without a doubt. So I want to bring up, you wrote a, an, a really wonderful piece on this, and I know it's a controversial issue. But when I think about the structures that are necessary, the systems that are necessary to help give women choice, to enable families to have a reasonable income, I can't remove from the equation reproductive freedom and reproductive mm-hmm. rights. How do you see that falling into the system of thing, this, this structure that needs to be put in place to prepare us for the future? Well, if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, again, it's going to be up to the private sector to figure out how they're gonna provide reproductive care uh, to the millions of workers who, you know, are invariably gonna face, potentially face needing to have that choice. Right. And so again, it's 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 a call for, for the, you can't stay out of this one. No, like there's this, um, it's a terrible irony that in the, if in the same time frame, the right to choose goes away, and there is no subsidized birth control. There is no um, child care. There's no paid leave. It becomes impossible for women to work. Impossible. And you wonder if that's the, that's the game. Right. And which for me makes it um, is one of the many reasons why it seems more important than ever before that you're doing the kind of work that you're doing and that we're getting mobilized to try and change these structures. So, and we have to connect the dots for people, um, that they're all interconnected and they're all yeah. happening at the same time. And add to that a decline in our mental health. Right. You know, 51% of working women are anxious and depressed. And so when you're being attacked on all these fronts, and you don't feel like you have support, it's heartbreaking. How did you, you shared a poignant story of a certain point where despite the incredible superhero that you are, you had your own moment of being like stuck on your bedroom floor, just overwhelmed. How did you pull yourself out of that? And what do we need to do to help other women do the same? I often pull myself out of those moments and I did that one by fighting for for myself and others. And I think as I was laying there, I was like, this isn't right. You know, if I'm feeling this way and I, then if I'm, you know, then other women are drowning. Mm-hmm. And I really started digging in a lot into the history, into the numbers, into the policies. 
and to the fact that I realized that there's just there there we need to be fighting for working women and we're all working women and we also need to be fighting for the ability to move in and out of the workforce with freedom and we don't have that and so it, 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 it was like a, almost like a bigger problem in many ways than the one I was trying to solve at Girls Who Code. And I was, so, I was like, and I had missed it. It had been right underneath my eyes and I had missed it. And I had thought, wow, if I've missed it and I'm like a feminist activist. <laughs> right. And, and the, the other piece of this, Laura, was like when I, when I wrote my first op-ed about that we needed a Marshall Plan for moms, it was really just like, a, I'm pissed. I'm going to write this and tell you what I think. It, I didn't intend to build a movement. I didn't intend to write a book. And I think what, what led to the movement was reading the comment section and how controversial this idea of standing up for motherhood mm-hmm. and standing up for policies to help support moms was. And it, it is it. radical, Reshma. Radical. Because part of, I think what's so radical about it is it completely recasts what it means to support motherhood, because it's too often been oversimplified as Donna Reed versions of the stay-at-home mom with a husband, like with a family with, you know, 2.4 kids, where the it is goes back to that unpaid labor that the mom is this icon of purity and selfish selflessness who is at home to take care of other people as opposed to being a whole multidimensional person it's yeah. redefining how we see moms and it's almost like for us as feminists focusing on that work was seen as kind of beneath us as feminists i think that's the other thing it was like the dirty secret mm. that we had that we were doing all that work that we didn't want to talk about, and, you know, I, and I, and I say this because I mean, again, there's this whole whole culture of like mm-hmm. lean in, girl boss. I mean, I have a million T-shirts, you know. Right, never mind, it's like the name I'm of a, all these books I'm on a, the shelves. All, everything, right? And and so we all subscribe to this. We all, I mean, I, I wrote more this. I wrote more articles than can count on it. And so part of it is to acknowledge how wrong we were. And how we miss it and how we have to have a radically different conversation. I mean, can you imagine this Women's History Month that instead of talking about, you know, how to get a mentor, you know, how to get a sponsor, how to learn how to be an investor, that we were like, how do we do less laundry? (laughs) How do we get our companies to, you know, have more policies that increase gender equality at home? I mean, we would, I really think that women felt like, well, I don't want to talk about that. Like... Yeah, which makes me think it's not that we were wrong necessarily, because it feels like there's always been, it's that it wasn't enough and it wasn't integrated. Um, Or we had stepped too far ahead, meaning we were focused on the equality in the workplace. You can't get to equality in the workplace until you- Without equality at home. And if you're a single mom until you have, you know, structures of care basically being put into place. But, and then now, listen, I, I think it's very in vogue to talk about care. Like it's very in vogue to kind of talk about unpaid labor, you know, a little bit, right? But but it can't just be a flee, fleeting moment or a trend. Right. Well, that's it, what it is. It has to be a part of a vocabulary and not a trend. Yes, yes. And I, and I think that that is, that is why I think the workplace organizing piece is very important mm-hmm. because in workplaces, you act, and, and this is where it matters, I think, a lot. You know, you're starting to get these, you know, organized groups of women, of parents, of ERGs. We're starting to have some of that language. 
you know, companies are talking about holding themselves accountable. And so now I think we need to add to the things that you need to hold yourself accountable for. Right. So don't just tell me that you have paid leave. Tell me how many men take it. Tell me how you tie it to performance reviews. Tell me how you actually create cultures where you're encouraging more of the care working to happen by men. Right. As opposed to having policies that actually no one can really take. Right. And that then culturally people are hurt for needing to take the policies that should have been encouraged all along. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's like, it's, and, and narratives can shift the way that people want them to shift. You know, in the, in the pandemic, it was like, everybody's working from home. We're more protected than we've ever been. The stock market is blowing up. And now all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 sorry, just joking. Y'all come back, right? That You're not productive anymore, right? It's not working anymore. And so I, I think instead of being kind of like, instead of not having control over That's all what time, it's about. Because actually- yeah. This, the research shows people are plenty productive. Yeah, maybe even, more, in, maybe even too productive. Like you can't turn it, I mean, you can't, there's no that's separation. My problem. That's right. my problem too, there's no separation. But employers want control and the perception of control. And so employers shape culture around their experience and their need and not the worker's experience and need. Yeah, well, that's what's ironic is that part of what I'm calling for and why it actually might work is that uh, you wanna reduce your attrition rate you want people to come back to work, pay for their childcare. Right. Better than salary. It, it's transformational. It's, it's, it's transformation. And, it, and it's sticky, meaning people stay because they think, OK, you care. You care about my family. You've given me this benefit. I like this childcare center that I'm at. Right. And the companies that um, really uh, responded in the moment of crisis and created childcare on-site school during the pandemic did wonders in retaining their employees during that time. All it's an investment that pays off, like the bottom line will be rewarded. All the data is very clear on that. That's right. It's very clear on that. So Reshma, I want to dial back for a minute because with the kind of five minutes or so that we have left, what in the book, you do an amazing job of talking about, you know, these different principles and issues that are clearly so important. But you also gave us tangible things that we could be doing in a number of different categories that I want to make sure we share with the listeners. Yeah. Um, and obviously, they should go get the book, and then they can have it as their own personal guide. But one of them is, and, you know, in that spirit of self care, you listed a few things that you had to even learn yourself that yeah. you think are essential. It's like putting your own oxygen mask on. Yeah. Can you list for us what they are? Yeah, well, I'll give you one of them. So, you know, one of them is about creating tangible boundaries. And, um, you know, for me, I have a two-year-old and a seven-year-old and my husband does the nights and I do the mornings. But if I'm sitting around at six o'clock, you know, watching Netflix, you know, my husband will say, hey, can you just warm up the bottle? We just change the diaper. So all of a sudden I'm doing night and day. And so I just leave every day at 6 p.m. I'll organize a girl's dinner. I'll have dinner by myself. I'll go for a walk, but I'm just gone. So your boundary, it's not just the boundary of, I have to turn my email off at dinner time so that like my colleagues aren't expecting me to write back. It's boundaries at home. It's boundaries at home. I mean, look, that's, you know, the first part of this book is, is about empowering yourself. And I wanted to be, you know, that it's, it, we have to be, we can't, because I don't want to say, here's the ways to fix yourself, meditate more, <laughs> right. go to the gym, like blah, 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 blah. But it's like, you know, it's, it's things that you do for you that's doable. 
you know, and I think setting some boundaries, you know, and wherever you feel like, like you get called back into, for me, it was again, nighttime duty, right? You know, nighttime now, nighttime duty, that time at the end of the day is actually the only time I get to myself. And so I'm not giving that up. Um, you know, I talk about it in, in the book, again, this, the ways to educate your work, you know, your employers and what to make the shifts that we want to make, you know, in, in the workplace. Um, we talked a lot about childcare, but, you know, also mental health, you know, mental health is huge. Again, one of the subgroups that are experiencing the most amount of anxiety and depression are, are mothers. I, I remember, you know, years ago, uh, when the millennials started raising mental health and mental health benefits in the workplace, I was like, what? Like, we don't talk about therapy at work, really? And I was, so, really need I was to. so amazed and proud of them for surfacing that. And and again, because it was, it, was, it was shame, right? You, you put it in a closet. Right. And it, it's, it's similar to, like, I was, I was being interviewed by, by, uh, by this, this, this great, you know, this male CEO. And, and I was telling him this. And he said, it's so interesting that you say that because um, I've never seen my mother break. Even when my father died, I never saw her cry. So it's like, and when he says that, we all kind of, you took a sigh because we're all like, yep. Like, we don't but, break in front of our kids. We don't no, break. No, but we break inside. Yes, and we're broken right now. We have an enormous amount of trauma, an enormous amount of stress, enormous amount of anxiety. And so we also can show up at work and say, just so y'all know, I'm not okay. Now, I know that that when I'm going to say that your listeners are going to be like, but but I'm already discriminated against as a mom. And now I'm going to tell them that I'm stressed, tired and anxious. But, you know, we kind of need to not be the martyr. Right. And and, and it's because we play this role in culture and movies and film and all of it that we are superwoman, you know, here with our capes. It's why we are treated like America's social safety net. Right. When the reality is that our superpower is that we are whole, complex, multidimensional people and we need to take care of each other and ourselves. And then we can really make the biggest possible contribution to the world. Reshma, we're unfortunately running out of time. It's such a joy to have you on the show. Thank you for making time. If people want to learn more about the Marshall Plan for Moms, Girls Who Code, where should they go? Well, go to Pay Up Book. Uh, dot com. Learn more about our entire movement. You know, sign up to be a pay up advocate. Let this book spark a conversation and go to RashmaSajani.com and you can learn Excellent. about all the trouble that I'm making. <laughs> Excellent. And Reshma, please keep it up. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. If you have a question about anything you heard, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. If you want to learn more about the future of work, Google the Wharton Future of Work Conference. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on SiriusXM channel 132. I hope everyone has a great week and parent loudly along the way. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.